Thank you, Blake and Jen. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 15 is where we're going to be this morning. When you're young and you're newly married, your only worry is to make it to the next day financially. I know this from experience. You come home every day and you think, how are we going to buy groceries this week? (laughs) Are we going to have enough money to pay rent? Everything is about making it to the next day. You don't have enough money. You don't have two nickels to rub together. You come home as I did one day when you're newly married with a bottle of Dr. Pepper and your wife says, why'd you buy that? You think we just have the kind of money to go buy Dr. Peppers whenever we want? And you realize that, hey, this is serious. we got to really think about how we're going to make it to the next day. We're not worried at this point about how we're going to save for the future. When it comes to long-term living, what we're going to do when we retire, what are we going to do when our bodies stop working and we can't work anymore and we just have to live on what we've already met? What are we going to do then? We don't think about those things right then. But at some point, you start to wake up to the real world, and all of a sudden, you realize we've been married for five years, we've been married for 10 years, and we got to start saving. We got to start putting away money because this isn't going to last forever. And so then you start talking to people that are investors and people know what to do with money. And they start to ask you questions like, have you diversified your portfolio? And you say to yourself, or you say to them, what's a portfolio? I think my mom carried one of those one time back in the day, right? Well, what is a portfolio? I don't know what it is to to diversify. Do you invest in high-risk bonds or perhaps low-risk bonds? Do you want to gain really fast and perhaps lose it all? Or do you want to just gain slowly but make sure that it's there? Is the stock market stable enough to invest in? I don't know. Would it be better to invest in real estate? How about both? Is that what it means to diversify? All these questions start flooding through your mind eventually when you wake up to the real world of investment. See, our world is built on financial planning, or perhaps we are built toward financial planning. And the desires of earthly financial planning is built on getting a great return on your investment. I want to put down a dollar, but I want to get back a hundred dollars. Everything is built on exponential return. And you realize at some point there are certain principles that apply to this investing. But as you talk to different people, they'll tell you different stories about what those principles are. No two people agree, it seems. Here we're in our seventh sermon in our series on worship. We've taken a step back from Matthew, and which is our typical study of going verse by verse through Matthew. And instead, we're taking a look at all of the things that comprise a typical worship service, and especially our worship service here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. And today we've come to the topic of giving, which is everyone's favorite topic and a, a favorite one of mine to preach on, don't you know? But Paul is going to lay down here some Christian principles on giving. What does it mean as a Christian to invest in the kingdom of heaven? And how does it differ from investment in the earthly kingdom? Let's look at 2 Corinthians 9, 6. The point is this. 
Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word instructs us on giving but we don't like to talk about it. I don't like to talk about it. I don't like to preach about it. And none of us like to hear it. We need to hear, to be instructed from You by Your Word. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Father, allow our hearts to be open to Your Word and what it has to say to us through the Apostle Paul this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this sermon is on giving. Normally, talking about money is going to ruffle everyone's feathers. And yet every week, just as we've just done, we pass the plate around the congregation and you place in the plate a portion of your hard-earned money. And we then take that money and we spend it on a multitude of things outlined in our budget, which our members vote on every single year before the year begins. This act is one act, and it's one aspect of our worship service. And so we need to talk about why it is that we do it, what it is that it accomplishes, and where our hearts should be in the process of doing it. And so this morning, we'll be looking at the exhortation that Paul gives to the Corinthians regarding uh, their contribution to an offering that he is collecting. And we know with reasonable certainty that Paul is taking up this collection for the church in Jerusalem. He's taking it up and his aim is to take it to the church of Jerusalem. And we know that because at the end of his letter in the book of Romans, which should appear uh, at, on the screen behind me, Paul says this in Romans 15, 25 and uh, 26. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia that's where Corinth is, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So we know, or we're pretty sure, that a famine has swept across Jerusalem in the early 50s, and it has virtually wiped out a lot of the, the crops that were there, that people grew and sold and things like that. And so there is an economic downturn in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area. 
And when there's an economic downturn, the ones that are hurt most are usually the poor of society. And so Paul is collecting money from the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. Think uh, Greece. Macedonia and Achaia. And he's taking it for the purpose of taking that collection to the church in Jerusalem so that they can take care of the poorer members of their congregation. And so the churches throughout the provinces of Achaia, which is, where, uh, which is where Corinth is, and Macedonia, they've been preparing to take up this collection. And Paul is writing a letter to the church at Corinth, which is the capital city of the province of Achaia in Greece. And, it, and it's in this context that Paul lays out his argument for why a Christian should be generous with his or her income. Because that is the question, and it does apply to all Christians. Why should we exude generosity toward those we come in contact with, particularly Christians? Why should we give of our hard-earned money? There are two things that I want us to see in our text this morning. Two observations that I want us to make is how the text is broken down. The first is the principles of Christian investment. The principles of Christian investment. And when I say Christian investments, I mean investing in the kingdom of God. Perhaps you could say kingdom investments. Um, So first is the principles of of kingdom investments. And the second are are the results or the, the growth of Christian investments. So once he lays out those principles, what happens in return? So you see there at the very beginning, first, the principles of Christian investment the principles of Christian investment. You see there at the beginning in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, he says the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, the principle that Paul lays down as a baseline for his argument is the principle of sowing and reaping. So Paul is using an agricultural metaphor as an analogy for how the kingdom of God works in, re- in relation to giving. Or how giving relates, or how giving works in the kingdom of God. See, with, with sowing, there is a temporary loss. The farmer loses his seed in the spring. He tosses it out there into the field. He's lost his seed. But in the fall, there is a tremendous gain. So the loss is only temporary. And he he says, if what you plant in the ground in the spring is meager, then what's going to happen in the fall? The fall is also going to be meager. And so immediately we should see a difference between investment in the kingdom of God and how it works and real-world investment and how it works. For one, if you come to a financial planner, even in a relatively stable economy like we live in in America, there's still no guarantees on your investment. Plenty of people went into the poorhouse in 2008 when the economy collapsed. Plenty of people went into the poorhouse. And if you want to go back even to the Great Depression, that was even worse. You could invest a lot and you could lose everything. That's possible in real world investment. But you can also invest a little and you could make great gains. The guy who invested $220 in Apple in 1980 when it went public, if he kept it, now has $125,000 out of that $220. Imagine if that was more. 
Unbelievable investment. So the, the principles that govern worldly investment don't always look like farming. In fact, we hope they don't. Earthly investing is built on exponential growth. And that is, of course, talking about a stable economy like the one we live in today. But imagine a less stable economy like the economies around the world or perhaps even the economies in the Roman Empire at the inception of the banking industry. Not only are the economies less stable, but as Jesus points out in another passage in Matthew, that there are other problems about security with your investment. Well, thieves break in and steal. Moths and rust corrode. So especially in a a society like that where people are investing in clothing because it seems to be the most stable. Invest in a a rich pair of a set of clothes that are purple, that are brightly colored, and they're they're worth a lot and they maintain their value. But what happens? Well, moths tear it up. It's not as stable. So the image of investments in the real world is one that's largely unstable. And they're built on exponential multiplication. But kingdom investments is a transfer. It's a transfer of funds from a a temporal reality to an eternal reality. That's the investment. It's a transfer of funds from something that's temporal to something that's eternal. In effect, what he's advertising here is a one-to-one transfer. Seed goes in the ground, crop comes up. It's a one-to-one transfer. See, in the kingdom, if you invest a little, you gain a little. If you invest a lot, you gain a lot. However, if you just stop there, then what does that mean for the poor person who's a lover of Jesus, who only has two nickels to rub together, doesn't have much, well, if you just stop there, then, and if you had barely any possessions or barely any money to contribute to transfer over to the eternal, well, so sorry for you. You are only able to invest a little, and so you only get a little in return. But that's also not a right understanding of the way investment works in the kingdom of heaven. So when you get to verse 7, Paul breaks down how the sowing really works. And so you have here in verse 6, the laying out of the principle, sowing and reaping. And then in verses 7 to 11, it looks closer at how it all works together. And there are four things that I think he points out in verse 7 that are true of the sower. First, he says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. You see that? Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Paul is unwilling to place a law on top of the Christian in regards to his or her giving. He's unwilling to say that you must give a certain percentage or a certain amount for reasons that he'll clarify in just a moment. However, if you look at the whole of what Paul's saying about giving, it would seem unbelievable to come across a Christian that doesn't give to some degree. For instance, if you look back one chapter, just turn back in your, in your Bibles, just one chapter to chapter 8, verse 8. Look at what Paul says there. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, 
so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now, he's talking about this offering that he's collecting, and he says that in their giving, the Corinthians are proving that their love is genuine. Well, love for whom? Love for Christ? Love for the body? And I think the answer to that, love for the saints, is, that it is both, yes. Love for Christ and love for the saints. He just told them, if you look back just a few verses from that, in verse 5, that the churches in Macedonia gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So he's using Macedonia as an example of this kind of giving who first gave themselves to the Lord and to the gospel and then gave themselves to us. And so what we produced was generosity in giving. And so it appears that Paul's saying that the Corinthian giving, that they're proving their love for Christ and for his body, which is actually a model of the gospel. Christ loved us to the point where even though he was rich, he came and gave everything for us. He became poor so that in his poverty, we might become rich. So the principle of giving comes back to the very foundation of the gospel. So what category would there be for a Christian to be uncharitable in his giving at all? Or or not giving at all? Well, one might say, what about poverty? Well, I'm, I'm poor. First, I want you to remember that Paul is not putting an amount or a percentage on this. Nor do I believe that I have the biblical warrant to. But he's saying first, it's a heart level decision. But then look at what he says to the churches in Macedonia, about the churches in Macedonia in chapter 8, verse 1. So just a few more verses before that. He says, we want you to know, brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they they gave according to to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." So here Paul even says that they gave according to their means. He's indicating not an amount or a percentage, but in accordance with means. You might think back to the widow's might that Jesus comments on when she came forward giving out of her poverty. He commends her for that in the eyes of the disciples. And so as it turns out, what Paul means that to sow sparingly and to sow bountifully is not about a dollar figure. It's about a heart level decision. A person who is looking first at what Christ has done for them. And then blessing the body of Christ by paying it forward. So sowing is first deciding in your heart and then repeating what Christ has done for you. That's sowing bountifully. Now Paul switches here to describe what it's not. What is sowing not? Well, he says it's not reluctantly. And the word there means out of sadness or out of of grief. You might sell everything that you have and you might give it to the poor, but if you're doing it reluctantly, it is not a kind of offering that the Lord honors. Then he says, nor does he take, uh, he takes it to the next, the next part here, which is very close to sadness, but it's just a little bit different. He says, it's also not under compulsion. 
The idea of being constrained or, or forced to doing it, do, do it, feeling as though that you have to keep up appearances, that this is part of what the Lord has mandated. This is a box that I have to check. That's also not the kind of giving that the Lord honors or that would be considered sowing bountifully. What kind of giving is proper, is God-honoring, is biblical sowing? It's cheerful giving. He says, God loves a cheerful giver. And it should come as no surprise that the content of your heart in the giving is what matters, is what counts. It's not the quantity of the gift itself. It's the quality of the heart giving it. It'd be much easier to place a law on the Christian. You have to give this much. But to give reluctantly to give out of obligation, to give begrudgingly, to give any other way than cheerfully is not faithful sowing. So biblical sowing, biblical giving could potentially see a wealthy man give 10% of all of his income and it be too little and it be done not in the right way. Or he give it begrudgingly and not cheerfully and it be in sin that he gives. Even though the church prospers and benefits from his gift. It could also see a widow give her might. But honor the Lord in her giving. But then Paul shifts to, from the proper heart of the sower to talk about the mechanics of sowing. If you look at verse 8, there's a couple things that Paul says happens to the giver. First he says, God is able to make grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, that word is contentment, having all sufficiency in all things at all times. So you see the first thing that God does is he makes his children content. That's difficult. The first thing that he does is he makes his children content in what they have. See, the enemy of generosity is discontentment. We always desire, we want more things, we want more toys, we want more things to spend our money on, we want more things to have in our possession. And we're intrigued and we're delighted by new toys. But the first thing that Paul says in his, in his hope here is that God makes us content. We're unwilling to set aside a lot of our money or give uh, uh, cheerfully and contribute generously because how else could we afford the lifestyle that we've grown accustomed to? First thing Paul says here is that God is the one who supplies the grace to make you content. In other words, contentment in what you have does not come from you. It's not natural, it's supernatural. God grants to us contentment. Discontentment, on the other hand, is our natural state. That's where we camp out and where, to be honest with you, we really like to be, is continually moving from one thing to the next. But God gives first His grace to be content, and therefore we give 
He quotes Psalm 112, verse 9, in verse 9, and he's talking about the one who fears the Lord there. He's not talking about God. He's talking about the one who fears the Lord when he says he. He says, um, he distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And then he, he explains what that means in the next verse. He says, he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So he's saying that not only does God supply the contentment, but he also supplies the seed that you have to sow. It's all God's to begin with. Everything is God's and it generates from him. It's here that many of the prosperity gospel preachers will just camp out, stop. And just stop the chain right there. I can see, as I was a kid, Robert Tilton on the TV. You remember him? Robert Tilton on the TV. And he's telling you, everybody in attendance, and everybody watching around the world, just send in your gift. And what will the Lord do? Multiply. He'll multiply it right there. Well, doesn't it say that right there in the text? Well, he multiplies it. Just give. And the Lord's going to be faithful to you. He's going to give you. He's going to multiply everything that you send in. Which makes you wonder why they don't send in a lot of stuff. (laughs) I want to ask a prosperity gospel to send me money. Uh, They don't seem to want to do that. Um, (laughs) There's a couple of problems that I have with that logic and the way it even works out in this text. It appears that what Paul is saying will return to you, if you look, it says, is seed for the sowing. Well, well isn't that, well, that's, that's money, right? Isn't that just money? But he seems to say in verse 8 that this is contentment in all things at all times for every good work, which would seem to extend beyond money. I don't think this is merely financial that Paul is talking about here, but he's certainly applying it to their financial gifts, sure. But it's not merely financial, Paul is including the idea that God does and is able to at times supply money to the giver. That it all comes from him anyway. But what brings me, brings me to my next problem that I have with the prosperity gospel preacher in promising just the increase of money as if this is a get-rich-quick scheme. If God did supply the giver with an increase of money on the back end, what would the purpose be? Well, he says in verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. He's saying that the purpose for which God grants gifts to you, money included, sure, but also patience and free time and energy, teaching ability, a house, cars, and many, many other gifts that the Lord gives to us is so that you would use them for good works in His kingdom. And to continue in good works in his kingdom for further kingdom investment. So the prosperity gospel promise is something like this. Give and God will multiply. And now you're richer than you were before. But the chain stops there. But it's not a chain. It's a circle. If God did grant an increase to your income, which I don't think is a direct promise here, but let's say it happened, its purpose would be so that you could give more. You could be more generous. You could grow in faith and trust. 
So the principles of Christian investment are as follows. Give as you have determined in your heart, but you must give cheerfully. And when you think about everything that you have, just remember that God has given that to you so that you can abound in using it for work in His kingdom. Everything. Now the second thing I want us to look at in this text is in verses 12 to 15, the return on Christian investment. What's the return on kingdom investment? Verses 12 to 15, Paul lists several things that returns to the Corinthians and that they can expect an investment in the kingdom of God. I think that applies directly to anyone that would give toward work inside the kingdom of God. And I'm going to go through these rather quickly. He says, it, he says in the negative in verse 12, but we take it to be true. He says, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints. Stop right there. So we know that one function of the giving in the church is that it can and should supply the needs of the saints. Remember, in the context, incredible poverty has sweeped through the church in Jerusalem due to the famine that's happened there. And the church is there to meet the needs of members in its congregation as they have fallen into poverty. So the first return on investment is that the needs of the saints will be supplied. And second, he says following that in the second half of verse 12, also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God. So the money that's received then leads to thanksgiving to God and glorifying of God. Well, what is that? Worship. It's worship. So the second return on investment is that the worship of God will increase. That in your giving, the worship of God will increase. And so he says then in the second half of verse 13, moving on. He says why these people are glorifying God shows us another return on investment. Look what he says. Because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Selfless giving of the Christian presents a testimony to the gospel. Why? Because as we read earlier, the gospel depicts very clearly that the Son of God had everything, abounding in riches. And what did He do? He left it to become poor. He left it to become despised. He left it to take on flesh, becoming so debased that the very people that he made cursed and spat on him and hung him on a cross so that there he could face the wrath of God on your behalf. So when Christ's people then become poor enough, even though they could be incredibly rich, when they choose instead to become poor, they testify that the gospel is true because the promise of Christ is that there is life beyond the grave. Well, what better testimony could the Christian give to the life beyond the grave than to right now, in the here and now, give up what they have and become poor, investing in a life to come? 
What greater testimony to a life to come could there be for the Christian than that? So the third return on investment, a strong testimony in the gospel will be given. Then fourth, look at verse 14. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. To the recipients of the gifts, see the grace of God upon the giver. And what does he say it leads to? It leads to an increasing love and harmony for the church as a whole. So in the case of the Corinthians, that's all the way back in Jerusalem. With people they're likely to never meet and never see. So the last return on investment is that affection for one another inside the body of Christ will grow. Well, that's only natural, isn't it? If the worship of God increases, then doesn't it mean that the affection for each other will also increase? You see two aspects here of sowing and reaping. The sowing and reaping, the investment and the return, the sowing, the generosity, it doesn't come from you. It's what the Lord supplies. It's what He has given you. He's given you contentment in what you have. Or perhaps you're wrestling with contentment in what you have. He's given you that wrestle too. Stirring your conscience toward repentance. But He's given you that contentment. He's also given you the possessions themselves to turn loose of. But then, what's the product What's the growth, the return? You see, it, it doesn't benefit you. It doesn't come back to you. You don't give. And then that comes back to you here and now. That's not the kind of return that you're looking for. The return in this passage, and I think in all passages of the Scripture, is what it does for others that's the return. It's what it produces in the body as a whole. What it produces in the body of Christ globally. So giving is, is quite literally a transfer of funds with cheerful hearts into a kingdom that will last eternally. It's the transferring of funds so that the, those, that money can be used in the working out of furthering the worship of God in the world around us. That's its purpose. And by that, it transfers over to the kingdom of God because what you're building is something that will last eternally rather than temporally. Because even those good feelings that you'd get back if you knew what that dollar does, it's temporal. It lasts that long. It's like cotton candy, which is the worst of all kind of candy. The increase, the multiplication. What about that? Where's that? If I'm really investing, shouldn't I get a return? Shouldn't I get some multiplication? Yeah. But it's not here. It's in the age to come. And it's as God has decided on judgment day. But it's based on the happiness in your own heart to do so. I think this has so many applications for us as a church body, for us as individual givers. And I'm going to go through just a few. Some of what I'm going to say will apply to us as a church as a whole. 
like how we actually use money that is given and where I would like to, as the pastor of this church, see us move in the coming years. So some of it will apply to the financial direction of this church and what I think this passage is actually saying to that. Because you have a right to know that, and I think I would want to know that if I was you. The others will apply to us as individual givers. I want to make two qualifications before I do this. When I say this, this is a picture of what I'm praying for this church. So what that means is some things will change inevitably as the picture grows clearer over time. Some things will change as the Lord directs the future of this church, for sure. The second thing is that I'm not putting a timetable on this. I'm simply saying that this is where I would love to see us go as a church body as a whole. And I think that that's probably going to take a long time to get there. That it's a slow process of changing the tide in a church. First, I think this passage informs us of what the church should be doing and what priorities it should be making as it collects the money that it does. First of all, I think that debt retirement should be a priority. The debt retirement should be a priority. Currently, right now, we owe $600,000 roughly on the children's building sitting next to this building. And I think that is a priority to pay off, to get uh, completely, be completely debt-free. And I think that's well within reach. I think we will get there um, in a relatively short order in several years, but I think it will take some time, but I think it should be a priority. Um, The reason is because, and the reason that I see it as an implication or an application from this text specifically is because often flexibility in missions, which is what Paul is exhorting the church in Corinth to do here, is to have flexibility in missions and to actually be able to collect an offering and give it to another congregation with no strings attached. The flexibility in missions is often hamstrung by debt. If you are a borrower, the Bible even says you're a slave to the lender, right? So, hey, you're often hamstrung in what you can do when you take on debt. And so I think it's a priority to not have that kind of hamstrungness to be able to pay off debt. Further, that means that we would have uh, paying down the debt would also give us flexibility in our worship ministry. We've been so, I've been so blessed to see that over the last year and a half, two years, we've had volunteers be able to come up here and lead us in worship. But those volunteers also work full-time jobs, and it would be helpful to have the flexibility in our budget to be able to hire somebody to steward that full-time. And so that happens, I think, once we get past the children's building debt. And so I think it's necessary to pay off. Now, that's not to say that all buildings are bad, but It does say that if God supplies the seed for our thinking in the future as we build or as we think about building in the future, should that day come, if God is the one that supplies the seed, do we not also agree that he could supply it in cash? I think so. So that debt becomes not necessary for a church. Now, another priority, I think in our orchestration of a budget, our organization of how we spend money is toward the purpose of increasing the worship of God. Increasing the worship of God. Tuscaloosa is our mission field. Tuscaloosa is our mission field. Everything that you see in this community is where God has put us and he's giving us that as a mission field. And so 
if I'm thinking about the future and how we actually then begin to evangelize the lost, begin to create discipleship opportunities here for our people, um, I think funding local missions in our community is going to be really important. And I think those people that are go- people that are going to be doing missions are going to be largely from within our own body. So I'm praying right now, and I want you to join me in praying that God would raise up inside of our body young couples that want to go into long-term overseas missions, that they would see our church as a place where they could receive training, where we could help them, put them in a place where they have an opportunity to share the gospel, one of the least evangelized places in any town in America. You know where it is? Apartment complexes like the one right across the street. So it would be our hope, my hope, that I'm praying for, that God would raise up young couples that desire to be trained in that capacity that we could put in places like apartment complexes because they, what they lend themselves to is you need to live there. You need to live there and be a part of the community there to do mission work effectively in that community. And so I'm praying that, we, that God would raise up couples that want to do that, that we could put in those places and we could fund while they're there to help train them, but also to provide long-term evangelism in those areas. I'm also praying that God would raise up young men that would, be in, that would have a desire for, to be in the pulpit to preach the gospel and that could receive here training at Emmanuel Baptist Church. They could stand in our pulpit that could preach to us, that could be encouraged by us. They could learn how to take the scriptures and read them and talk about them and sh- give their sense to the congregation and apply them. I think fueling gospel teaching is going to be a priority with our financial future. But I think this also informs the way that we give. As individuals, the way that we give. First, I think it says to us that we give with no strings attached. This isn't a giving as long as it goes to the things that I approve or the things that I like. Well, I like what we're doing there, and so I'll I'll give in that direction. But I don't like what we're doing there, so I'm not going to give in that direction. I think it informs us to say that there's no strings attached when we give. That it also says to us that we're trusting in the fruit that God is going to accomplish through it, though it may be fruit we never see. The churches in Macedonia and Achaia are likely never going to even reach Jerusalem and never see what, what comes as a produce from their giving. They may or may not hear reports. They didn't have email or text message back then, remember. And so they're giving, not only with no strings attached, but they're giving trusting that God is going to produce the fruit It also means that we're placing a trust that the return that I'll receive and that I'm looking for will be incorruptible. But that's what it means for us as givers. That every dollar that goes into the plate, I'm thinking to myself, I pray that God produces fruit out of this dollar. But I also pray that He produces in me a desire for return on my investment in the age to come and not here. But last, I think what it means is that we shouldn't expect our giving to stop at the plate. Your giving doesn't stop at the plate. Our job, what we've been put here for primarily is to worship God. And secondarily is to bring others into the worship of God. 
And so our, our task that we've been given is to make disciples, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded them, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That it means making disciples means evangelizing the lost, for sure. But it also means taking the saved and showing them how to be Christians. But it comes as a harsh reality if we're maybe complaining about how dollars are spent here or there or wanting to know where every cent goes in every capacity and we want all of those things perfectly directed and perfectly aligned and we're happy to sit and talk about those things but if you look over the past year of your life and there's been no sharing of the gospel, there's been no discipling of other people, of young Christians, then where are your priorities? What is your desire? Is your heart more set on money and things than on kingdom investment? Because it doesn't stop at the plate. We can't just give and think that that's it. That's all that happens now. No, it's giving and going. Those are the marks of a Christian. All the while trusting that he's going to produce seed and he's going to multiply it. And that in the end, in the age to come, will be the return on investment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for our church. I pray for our people. I pray for us as givers, us as stewards of your resources, living lives in the kingdom of God. Father, produce in us a desire, a deep desire, to give with generosity. Place in us hearts that are so set on your kingdom that so look forward to that day that earthly possessions mean very little to us. That they're tools in our hands to be used for ministry in your kingdom. That they would produce an eternal reward. Give us that burning desire in our hearts. Father, where we wrestle with contentment, bring us to the point of repentance. Give us the gift of repentance. That we may repent of discontentment and realize whether we're in poverty or in riches, we know what it is to be content in all things, trusting that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. In Jesus' name, amen.